This episode may contain themes that are unsettling for some listeners and includes dialogue that is inappropriate for children under 14. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Juicers, I'm Alyssa. And I'm Brooke. And this is, for God's sake, don't drink the Jones juice. Welcome to episode 48. Hi. Almost up to 50. God, and then uh, 52. That'll be like a whole year. I mean, it's been over a year, but we had like a few weeks where we didn't record. Yeah. So our 52nd episode that's a big deal heck yeah we need to go out for steaks that day right celebrate (laughs) and you know what just it just reminded me (laughs) something we talked about last last episode that we have not set a date for what corpsewood manor oh yeah i had it written huge letters so i wouldn't forget (laughs) still haven't done it and i was actually thinking on my way up here that i wanted to go hiking yeah because it's getting cooler yeah and I've been, I think I've told you this, I've been walking three miles every morning. That's so awesome. Good and for you, girl. Thank you. And I just kind of want to do like yeah. a hike now. That's Let's really what it. I want to do. I love hiking. I so. love hiking too, but. Let's go find a cool place and do it. I've been so out of shape for so long, but I mean, I've been walking three miles every morning for like it's three fantastic. weeks or four weeks. I can't remember, but. Give me your motivation. It's, um literally my belly is my motivation same um so speaking of hiking why don't we talk a little bit about gabby petito since that's a huge topic topic right right now now. so you guys have been blowing up blowing below every time i get on facebook we have like five holy requests to post something in the group like oh yeah legit I mean, I'm constantly approving posts and thank you guys like for keeping us up to date because sometimes I don't see things and I'm like, damn, like they are on it. Yeah, I I found out about Gabby through another podcast I was listening to and I was like, oh, no, sad. And then literally everybody just started. So I just saw it on Facebook and then, yeah, yeah, our group went wild. Um, So if you guys are not in our Facebook group, go join because we are constantly discussing that case. Um. Shit's wild, man. Like, it is fucking devastating. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. And to think that the internet basically solved, well, didn't solve her crime, but, like, found her body, essentially. Oh, yeah. Like, that is incredible. It it reminds me of uh, Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah. You know, they found Luca Magnata all on their own. That one, like, Facebook group. Yeah. Or like looking at Google Maps and like just comparing stuff in his room to it's crazy what the internet can do. Like now if y'all can just find Brian Laundry. Yes, find him and I'm gonna be honest with you, and I've said this in the group, I think if he has not yet, it will be a matter of time before he offs himself. Cause he there's no you can't run forever, motherfucker. You can't. I kinda don't think he will kill himself think he's too much of a narcissist yeah i think yeah. that he will he just thinks he'll get away with it he, like he'll he, run you're away not going to dude you're if not. you can drive that van back home and you know not tell anybody about it and just act like nothing happened and then hide away in your house and refuse to speak to police yeah yeah you're just the gigantic narcissist and i, I can't believe that like 
Uh, it's just crazy to me. I like, saw that his parents got arrested. What did they get arrested okay, for? So I don't think they were arrested. I think whoever posted that in the group just kind of read like the title of the article and posted it because somebody commented on it and was like, they did not get arrested. And whoever it was was like, stop spreading false information. And uh, I think it actually read that they um, like entered the home and like with a search warrant and like searched it and like escorted the the uh, parents out while they okay. did that, but they didn't arrest them. Right. However, I think they do need to be arrested. Oh, I think so too. I don't sure. know why they haven't been arrested. I don't know. Aiding and abetting a criminal. I mean, so I haven't, when all this stuff was going on, like people were posting article after article after article and i watched some of the videos and i read some of the articles but like mm-hmm. i had so much going on i couldn't just yeah. stop and read all of it which makes me feel bad as mm-hmm. a person who has a true crime podcast um but it's just been crazy but anyways i think or i had a question it was a question about well i'll tell you i have read every single article you guys have posted because this shit has consumed me. Yeah. And I think it's consumed most of the nation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you get those people like, well, you know, why did this particular case, you know, catch the media t- media's attention? And why are so people so invested in this particular case? And, um, you know, it, it's true. There are so many more, you know, missing women out there, missing men, missing children, um, you know, that haven't gotten that coverage. Yeah. But... I think that's just kind of the way it works. I mean, the media can't cover every single one, yeah. you know, and Gabby was a vlogger and I guess had a pre- pretty decent following before she went missing. So that was helpful. Um, I, I also really don't think it's because she's like a pretty white boy. And I have girl. read that too. And yeah. Uh, no, I, I think there's other reasonings behind it. I'm um, sure there are tons of pretty white blonde girls that are missing that missing. nobody knows about. Right, exactly. I mean, I come across pages all the time. You oh, know, me, too. me too. Where girls are missing and have been missing for a long time, and you've never heard of them. Never. Yeah. So there's some. I mean, there's obviously something about this particular thing that like caught people's attention. And now I have also heard the theory, you know, which we get a lot of, um, you know that the government's hiding something so you know they made this super big coverage so that it could keep us from what's really going on which could be truth too <laughs> i mean there's you a know? lot going on in the world right now so. so and yeah i mean it just it blew up yeah and that's why it's just incredible to me that they haven't found this fuck it it, it is crazy but it, i mean sometimes i hear people say um like how do you how can you not find a person mm-hmm. like how do you just go away but the world is so big and like even just the u.s it's so big you could be anywhere that's true literally anywhere but usually these criminals are not as smart as they think they are oh they you think they're I mean? way smarter than they actually i'm are. Sure, pretty sure he didn't think they were gonna find her body that quick either oh yeah you know what i mean i'm sure so it's a matter of time I, I, I can't wait for... Oh, God, that sounds bad. I want her autopsy report to come back because I want to read it. Yeah. I saw something somewhere, and I don't want to report false information, guys, but um, <clears throat> I don't recall where I saw this, who commented it, if it was an article or what. So I could very well be wrong. I apologize if I am, but I read something about that she was beat to death. Yeah. So... 
Well, that wouldn't surprise me. Well, exactly. Because we don't know anything about him having weapons or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, You know, I was... Okay, so when I was watching the the police body cam footage... Oh, uh, rip my heart out. Literally, I want to point something out to people who were like... Why didn't she just tell the police? She was right there. They were right there. They could have gotten her out of there. No. If you really watch it and listen to what they're saying, I want you to realize that Gabby blamed herself for everything. It was an abusive relationship, and I stated this on my page. If you haven't been there, you do not understand the mindset someone who is, is in. Yeah. You do blame yourself. Yep. You do cover for them. Well, and it's also like, it's it's a mixture of you're blaming yourself because you really feel like it might be your fault or and because you are scared of this person. Yes. You don't want the blame to fall on them because you're scared of the reaction exactly. that they're going to have. And the whole time he's literally blaming her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how those relationships work. Like, yes, if it was her fault and he was like, you know, she was doing this, yeah. then like, it's not weird. But just the way that she's being, she's sitting over there, obviously, like having a breakdown. She's mm-hmm. crying and he's like laughing and apologizing and saying things like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry if I was speeding and I'm so sorry if I hit that curb. Like he was going 45 and a 15. He should have been, you know probably arrested right there for that yes um but yeah you know these victims of you know abusive toxic relationships do take the blame so much and they you know they protect their abuser and why because they're scared of the reaction of the abuser even if they don't realize it absolutely absolutely it becomes habit because that's all you know Mm -hmm. you know so i don't know i i hate i hate hate when I see people victim blaming and why didn't she get out? Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? Because they were terrified. Yeah. You know? I was talking to somebody about something unrelated to Gabby, but it was about somebody in an abusive relationship and they were like, why don't they leave? Why don't they leave, Alyssa? And I was like, this is why. Because when you are in a relationship like that, they break you down so much. And it doesn't start out fast. And everybody knows this. Everybody hears this. It starts out pretty slow. It's the little things. Like, you do something and they, you know, berate it. And, you know, they do it so over time. But it's it, it starts to make you feel like what you're doing, what you're saying is the problem. Like, this person can't be in the wrong Mm -hmm. you know if they're pointing all this stuff out and it makes sense that they would react this way to Mm -hmm. what i did yeah you know you you start to believe that oh what i'm doing is an issue Mm -hmm. and and then it seems harmless yeah but over time that builds up and it builds up and they just tear your self-esteem down you feel like you're not worthy of anything else and and you feel like they're a piece of crap but you also feel like they're better than you yeah that's what they do to you that's how they make you feel they make you feel like you are worthless and you know that they're treating you badly but you also feel like they're better than you it's such a weird frame of mind to be in you know what i mean yeah i know exactly what you mean but uh yeah, yeah it's crazy it is a crazy mind state 
it, well, crazy is not even the word for it. It's a manipulated mm -mm. and abused mind. Right. And uh, it's also weird because you're not, it's not something you can describe to somebody else. Like, no. They won't get it. No. They can't get it unless you've actually had to go through it. Mm -hmm. You have no idea what it's like to feel as though you're less than somebody, but that person is also just a piece of shit. It's so weird. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, <laughs> with all of that being said, um, this is going to be a rather long episode, so we should probably get started. Okay. Um, okay. So before I get started, I just want to say trigger warning. This one is a tough one. Um, this shit is brutal. And the story includes rape, rape of a minor, sodomy, um, and the graphic torture and murder of a minor. So this is the story of Shanda Scherer. Um, I will tell you my sources, which are talkmurderwithme.com, everythingtruecrime.tumblr.com, filmdaily.co, and Wikipedia. <clears throat> so first, we are going to talk about Shanda. Shanda Renee Scherer was born in Pineville, Kentucky on June 6, 1979 to Stephen Scherer and mom Jacqueline, who was later known as Jacqueline Vault. Her parents divorced when she was a child, and Shanda and her mother then moved to Louisville. There, Shanna went to the 5th and 6th grade at St. Paul School, where she played volleyball, softball, and cheered. Yeah. Shanda was pretty popular, athletic, bubbly, and outgoing, and she made friends easily anytime she entered a room. Must be nice. <laughs> she was smart and made really good grades, and she was just an all-around really good girl. Her mother ends up divorcing yet again, and the family moved in June 1991 to New Albany, Indiana. Shannon then enrolled at Hazelwood Middle School. And this is where Shanna, I keep calling her Shanna, her name is Shanda, <laughs> forgive me, Shanda, I've called her Shanna several times, so please forgive me. I haven't even noticed. Yeah, I think I did. Um, so this is where Shanda uh, met her classmate, 15-year-old Amanda Hevron. Now, this was odd to me, and I didn't take the time to delve into why, but so she's in middle school, right? Mm -hmm. She is 12 years old, but she has classmates that are like 15 and 16. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I guess maybe back then or maybe in Indiana, middle school is longer and maybe high school's only a couple of years or something i don't know i had wondered that too whenever i heard the story i'm like why is a 15 year old and a 13 year old in the same so here in georgia guys middle school is sixth seventh and eighth grade and then you go to high school for ninth tenth eleventh yeah. and twelfth and you're four you turn 14 in eighth grade and then you turn fifth grade fi 15 and ninth grade 15 and ninth grade yes so yeah i i've wondered about this um why a 15 year old was in middle school but maybe somebody can clarify yeah because i have no idea could be a like you know jasper kind of how we have the primary, primary. and mm -hmm. the elementary mm -hmm. it could be something like that but i guess i have no idea so at first, Amanda and Shanda didn't like each other. They got into a fight and they ended up in detention together. In detention, they resolved their issues and became friends. Jackie, Shanda's mother, wasn't sure about the friendship. 
It seemed that since it began, Shanda's grades were slipping and she was getting into trouble. Oh, no. Soon after becoming friends, Amanda and Shanda started exchanging love notes and they became a couple. Side note, um, this is something in all of my research I saw nothing about. Um, I know once upon a time many years ago I watched a documentary on this particular case and I do not remember this being talked about and I'm wondering why it's not talked about more. But why is a 15-year-old dating a 12-year-old? Dude, so when I listened to, um, I can't remember what podcast it was that covered this recently. Did they talk about that? Yes. They're like, that is weird to me. That seems not okay it seems like she's grooming her yeah and it's weird i mean imagine being 15 and like dating Dating a 12 year old -old. that's super weird that's very weird but i didn't see anybody else discussing that and so it i mean immediately it caught my eye like what that's fucking weird unless shanda was acted way more older than a 12 year old i guess i could see like well no i agree with you if if she was my daughter i wouldn't allow it but right i'm just saying as Maybe far as see the attraction or whatever yeah if she seemed older than she was i guess well I can see looking it. at pictures of shanda she was a beautiful girl and i wouldn't have thought she was 12 no no same so i don't know but i do have a feeling that if this had been a heterosexual relationship then people would be up in arms about it oh yeah if if um what's her name amanda yeah if she was a 15 year old boy yeah yeah, it would be like yeah yeah. it was just odd to me in this particular case that like no one really blinked an eye Right. I don't know. Like, what? That, that's weird. Yeah, it it stopped weird. me in my tracks. I'm like, wait, what? Wait a minute. Besides the fact that she's 15 and in middle school, why is she with a 12-year-old? Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, so in October of that year, the two girls went to a school dance together. There, Shanda and Amanda were confronted by 16-year-old Melinda Loveless, who had previously dated Amanda for more than a year, and she was now extremely jealous of the new couple. So here we are again, guys, with a 16-year-old in middle school. I don't understand. So weird. It, it's very weird to me, but like I said, maybe in different states it's different. We're just used to old Georgia stuff. I don't know. Um, so Melinda tried to fight Shanda, but Amanda was able to stop her. In the weeks following, Melinda would threaten 12-year-old Shanda publicly, and she talked to anyone who would listen, saying that she would kill Shanda. No one really took her seriously, though. Shanda's mother ends up finding Amanda's love letters to Shanda, many of which were sexually explicit. Soon, Shanda was starting yet another school. Her mother decided to transfer her to Our Lady of Perpetual Help School, which was a Catholic school in New Albany, to get her away from the drama at Hazelwood. This also put her closer to her dad, who she would finally get to see more often. Yeah. Once she was enrolled at the new school, Shanda quickly joined the girls' basketball team and made lots of friends. Good for her. Now, against her family's wishes, Shanda did not break up with Amanda when she transferred schools. Amanda continued sending letters to Shanda and calling her at home. Shanda, however, was distracted with her new school and wasn't as responsive as Amanda would have liked. Now, this is where the story takes a dark turn. And what seemed to be a jealous teenage lover's spat spirals into something much more sinister. Mm -hmm. Before I go into the events of January 10th, 1992, we're going to discuss the backgrounds of the people involved. 
<clears throat> I think it's very important we discuss this so that you can get an idea of what kind of young woman we are dealing with. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't explain their backgrounds to in any way downplay their horrific acts, but I feel that their upbringings should be discussed. Uh, Aphrodite Jones wrote the 1994 true crime book, Cruel Sacrifice, which takes an in-depth look at Shanda at Shanda's case. And she dubs the four girls who I'm about to discuss the original mean girls. I mean, the original evil. They are beyond the mean girls. I would much take Regina George over. Yeah, who we're about to talk about. So first we have Melinda Loveless, who was 16 years old. We remember her, right? Mm -hmm. She's the one that was, uh, that used to date Amanda, who is now Shanda's girlfriend. Yes. Melinda was originally from New Albany, Indiana. She was born October 28th to Larry and Marjorie Loveless. Another side note real quick, and you guys will figure this out later in the story, but Loveless is the perfect last name for this monster. Kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Do you, uh, there's somebody in my in my life with the last name. Loveless. Are they Loveless? Yes. Really? They are very Loveless. Oh. Her parents were alcoholics and they were swingers. Larry was a Vietnam Army veteran who was very emotionally scarred and had trouble holding down a job. For two years, beginning when Melinda was five, the family was deeply involved in the Graceland Baptist Church. Larry and Marjorie gave full confession and stopped drinking and swinging while they were members. Larry became a Baptist lay preacher and Marjorie was the school nurse. The church later arranged for Melinda to be taken to a motel room with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism. Um, excuse me? Yeah, I'd be like, nope, my child's not doing that. Absolutely Thanks. not. Weird, right? Larry became a marriage counselor with the church, and he gained a reputation quickly for being too forward with the women, and he eventually attempted to rape one of them. After that incident, the loveless parents left the church and returned to their old ways. Larry was known as violent, verbally abusive, a drunk, and a sadistic pervert. Oh, gosh. Larry would force Marjorie to let his friends have sex with her, which Marjorie absolutely hated. So rather than calling them swingers, I would call it more of like Larry's a rapist and a disgusting human. Pimping her out. Yeah. yeah. Larry would regularly force Marjorie to engage in orgies with both men and women that he would pick, pick up in bars. <clears throat> Larry was known to pretend that he was a doctor or dentist in order to charm people and pick them up. Creepy. Once Marjorie refused to let him go home with two women, he met at a bar. So he beat her so badly that she was put in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. He was an awful man. He was charged with battery. Marjorie attempted suicide multiple times. Once during one of the orgies and another time... Larry had Margie gang raped and she tried oh, to kill no. herself again. Poor lady. Yes. Marjorie was so distraught by the event that she decided she was going to withhold sex from Larry for a month. So he violently raped her while their three daughters were in the home, able to hear everything. Oh my gosh. Traumatizing. Basically, this girl's whole life is trauma. Yeah. Marjorie later described Larry as a sexual deviant who would wear her and her daughter's underwear and makeup. 
and he was incapable of staying monogamous. And he had a mixture of jealousy and a fascination with seeing her have sex with other men and women. So weird. Now, this part's pretty rough right here. Larry also subjected his daughters to sexual abuse, but the extent of this is unclear. There are reports that he molested his daughters and nieces when they were children. Both Melinda's sisters admitted that he had molested them, but Melinda never told if he did. Later in court, Melinda's cousin Teddy, who claims she was raped by Larry, described an incident in which he had tied all three sisters in the garage and raped them repeatedly. Oh, my God. However, the sisters would not confirm this account. Larry was verbally abusive to his daughters, and he fired a handgun in the direction of Melinda's oldest sister, Michelle, when she was seven, intentionally missing her. Wow. What a piece of shit. Just awful. So terrible. Now, this part really got me, and... It makes me want to vomit. So prepare. Trigger warning. This is very, very disturbing. He would also embarrass his daughters by finding their underwear and smelling them in front of other family members. Okay, that's just disgust. Like, that just makes you look disgusting. Yeah. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you alive? Why that's what I want to know. Why are none of the family doing anything about this? Like, that's sickening. That's so disgusting. Yeah. What a fucking freak. Yes. So, sadly, Melinda shared a bed with him up until she was 14. So, we can only imagine what happened to her. Um, But her her parents divorced, and he abandoned the family. Thank God. Yeah. So, for a short time, he would write her letters and that kind of thing. Um, But as horrible as he was, Melinda loved her father, and she always spoke fondly of him. Which, again, I think is abuse and having Mm -hmm. that bond with your abuser yep a trauma bond yes exactly exactly that was the word i was looking for words i was looking for so melinda struggled with depression and she would regularly get into fights at school this affected her schoolwork and she had to repeat a year of school so that maybe could explain why she was in middle school but i still think it sounds off because she's I mean, 16 at the time. If they had a middle <clears throat> school that went up till you're 15, it would make sense why she yeah. was still there. Like ninth through ninth grade or something, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So um, after she came out to her mother in March of 1991, she was open about being a lesbian, which wasn't common for a small town in Indiana in the early 90s. Right. Initially, her mother was infuriated, but she learned to accept it. So next on the list, we have Mary Laureen Tackett, who is aged 17, and they also called her Laurie, and that's what we will uh, refer to her as from here on out. Laurie was from Madison, Indiana, about 50 miles from New Albany. She was born October 5th, 1974. Laurie came from a strict Pentecostal Christian household. Laurie claimed that she was molested at least twice Um, as a child at the ages of 5 and 12. In May of 1989, her very strict mother discovered that she was changing into jeans at school, because if you know anything about Pentecostals, they have to wear skirts Mm -hmm. or dresses. They are not allowed to wear pants. And her mother attempted to strangle her after a confrontation. What a Pentecostal thing to do. (laughs) Her mother was extremely strict, and she ran that household. And, like, you got under her skin, you were getting it. You're getting strangled. (laughs) Exactly. 
So both of her parents were extremely abusive, and child services visited the home multiple times. Around her 15th birthday, Laurie became increasingly intrigued by the occult, paranormal activity, and vampirism. Is that how you say it? Vampirism? Vampirism? I have no idea. We're going to say vampirism. I think that's what it is. Laurie had a harsh, white blonde, boyish haircut, and she wore black from head to toe. She was known for being unapproachable and showing very little emotion. At one point, her mother went to Hope Hope Rippy's house after finding out that Hope's dad had purchased a Ouija board for the girls. She demanded that the board be burnt and that the Rippy house be exercised. Okay, just demand that out of somebody else's home, okay? Yeah, we'll talk about Hope next. But um, at the age of 16, Laurie began to self-harm after starting to date a girl by the name of Tony Lawrence, who did the same. This landed her in the hospital several times. The first time, she was given an antidepressant and released. The second time, after she and Tony cut their wrists so deeply that they had to be sent to a psychiatric ward, she was diagnosed with borderline personality personality disorder and told the hospital that she had experienced hallucinations since she was a young child. In September of 1991, she dropped out of high school. While living in Louisville in October, Laurie met Melinda and they became friends. By the end of the year, Laurie was spending most of her time with Melinda in New Albany, and she rarely went back home to Louisville. Next up is Hope Anna Riley, age 15. Now, she's the one who had the Ouija board at Mm -hmm. home and, you know, crazy Laurie's mom. Yeah. Crazy Laurie's crazy mom went, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So I could not find hardly anything about this one. I do know that uh, and we call her Hope. She goes by the name Hope. She was from Madison, and she was friends with Laurie. She was born June 9th, 1976. Her parents didn't approve of her and Laurie's friendship. Hope and Tony Lawrence, our next girl, had been close since they were very young, and Hope was also known to self-harm. That's all I have. Wow. Now, Tony Lawrence, 15 years old. Tony was born on February 14th. 1976 and raised in Madison. She was good friends with Hope, but didn't know the other girls. She was abused by a a relative at age nine and raped by a teenage boy at age 14, although police were only able to issue an order for the boy to keep away from her. Wow. Bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. She went into counseling for a short time after the incident, but did not follow through. She became promiscuous, started self-harming, and attempted suicide in the eighth grade. So sad. So we've got four very disturbed young women. Very disturbed, yes. Again, not taking away from their just horrid acts, but very um, emotionally disturbed and abused and just uh, traumatized girls here. Yep. So now here we are, and it's June 10th, 1992. That evening, Laurie, Hope, and Tony piled into Laurie's car, planning to go to a punk rock concert. This was the first time Tony and Laurie had met. Tony was a bit unsettled by Laurie. You know, Laurie was different. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Kind of goth. Had this really tough exterior. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I don't know how I feel about this chick. 
So not far into the car ride, Laurie turned and asked Hope, did you tell her yet? To which Hope replied, tell her what? And Laurie says, we're going to kill a girl tonight. Now, Tony just thinks it's like some kind of sick joke, you know, like who's, you know, we're teenage girls. We're not going to go kill somebody. I'm going to be honest with you. If some person that said that to me, I would be very freaked out by it and probably be like, yeah, I'd like out of the car now. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that either. (laughs) Especially if they were weirded out by her to begin with. Right. Yes, I would go. So the girls had to pick up Melinda next. They drove to New Albany and they arrived at Melinda's house. Hope didn't know Melinda well and Tony had never met her. Melinda was excited to see the three girls when they arrived. She let the girls borrow some of her clothes and got into the car carrying a large kitchen knife. Sitting in the car, she told Hope and Tony about how she wanted to scare this girl, Shanda, because she was trying to be like her and had stolen her girlfriend. Laurie, Hope, and Tony had never met Shanda before. Melinda continued discussing her hatred for Shanda and how much she wanted her dead for stealing her girlfriend. She did, however, admit that Shanda was sexy as much as she hated her. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) Ew. Tony and Hope sat in silence, just shocked. Yeah, I mean, ew, there's a lot going on here. There's, like, some weird, like, underage stuff. Yeah. And then there's murder. And then there's, like, you're literally hating on a 12-year-old child, yeah. okay? And we're, like, 15, 16, 17 here. Yes, like, Come she's on literally a, an actual child. Child. Child, child. So the four arrived around 8 p.m. at Shanda's house. It was just before dark. Melinda instructed Hope and Tony to knock on Shanda's door to say that they were friends with her girlfriend, Amanda, and ask her to come with them to see her. So imagine opening your door. There's two girls you've never met in your life. And they're like, yo, your girlfriend wants you to come visit or come get in the car with us. Right. Mm, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So meanwhile, Melinda hid on the floor of the car and Laurie covered her with a blanket. She knew that if Shanda saw her, she would get scared and refuse to come with them. Of course. The girls told Shanda that Amanda was at the witch's castle, which was a ruined stone house located on an isolated hill overlooking the Ohio River, and that Amanda desperately needed to see her. Again, Shanda had never met Hope or Tony before. Mm-hmm. But, of course, she was intrigued about seeing her girlfriend, Amanda, right? Right. She's pretty much been banned from Amanda. You know, you need to break up with her. She's like, "Mm, I want to see my girl. I could 100% see how she would go with them. Yeah, especially 12 years old, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So she tells the girls to come back at midnight once her parents were asleep because there was no way for her to leave with her parents awake. She had to sneak out. When Tony and Hope returned to the car without Shanda, Melinda was infuriated. They assured her that they could come back in a few hours. So she finally calmed her shit. The girls decided to go to the punk rock concert while they waited, and they spent a couple of hours there. Tony and Hope quickly lost interest in the music and went out to the parking lot where they had sexual relations with two boys in Laurie's car. Um, okay. Yeah. Shit's wild. After the concert, Melinda called Amanda and for the last time told her that she was going to kill Shanda. 
The girls drove back to Shanda's house, and at around 12.30, after some reluctance, they successfully lured her into the car. Unbeknownst to Shanda, Melinda was lying down, hidden in the back with the kitchen knife. As Hope drove away, she began asking Shanda questions about her relationship with Amanda to trigger Melinda, and it worked. Melinda leapt out of her hiding place and pushed the knife against Shanda's throat. Surprise, Melinda shouted. I bet you didn't expect me here, you bitch. Oh, my God. I've been so scared. Can you? I I, I can't. Like, I, I just can't. I can't either. Melinda began interrogating Shanda about her relationship with her ex-girlfriend. Shanda sobbed and pleaded for her to let her go, promising to leave Amanda alone. They drove towards the witch's castle. Laurie told the girls that a a local legend said that the house was once once owned by nine witches and that townspeople burned down the house to get rid of the witches. When they arrived at the witch's castle, the girls took the sobbing Shanda inside and bound her arms and legs with rope. Um, I know I've already done this a couple of times, but I'm going to give another trigger warning because from here on out, it gets very graphic. Really bad. Very graphic. So there, Melinda taunted that Shanda had pretty hair and wondered how pretty she would look if they cut it all off. Which scared Shanda even more. Just, I'm sure you're terrified at this moment. Yes. Melinda took off Shanda's rings and handed them to the other girls. Hope took off Shanda's Mickey Mouse watch and danced to the tune it played. Okay, let repeat that. Um, a Mickey Mouse watch, and She's you're about 12. to just torture this girl. She's okay. She's twelve, an innocent little soul. Twelve, and imagine dancing to the tune. It's like disgusting, gross. Laurie taunted Shanda, saying that the witch's castle was filled with bones of dead bodies and that hers would be next. Shanda begged and cried to go home. To further threaten her, Laurie grabbed a t-shirt with a smiley face design from the car and lit it on fire, saying that Shanda would soon be the one burning. But then she got nervous that the fire would be spotted by passing cars, so the girls decided that it was time to leave. Laurie led them to a dark garbage dump off in a forested area. Melinda and Laurie forced Shanda out of the car. Tony and Hope were frightened, and they stayed inside the car. The two ringleaders made Shanda strip naked. Then Melinda began beating the helpless Shanda with her fists, then repeatedly crammed her knee into her mouth, causing Shanda to bleed. She then sprayed Windex into Shanda's eyes. Melinda attempted to slash Shanda's throat, but the knife was too dull. At some point during the beating, Hope got out of the car to help them in holding Shanda down. Why, why, why? You were in the car. You could have not been an accessory to this extent. Honestly, you could have just like gone and got help right well imagine running from these two psychos in the middle of the woods i wonder if the car was still on i don't know um so while hope was holding shanda down laurie and melinda took turns stabbing shanda in the chest oh my god and they eventually strangled her with a rope knocking her out 
They threw Shanda into the trunk and told the other girls that she was dead. They then went to Laurie's house to wash the blood off of themselves. Laurie fixed the girls some soft drinks. When they heard Shanda screaming and banging around in the trunk, Laurie grabbed a paring knife and went outside where she opened the trunk and stabbed Shanda in the head. Oh my god. Laurie returned to clean herself up again and told the girls their futures with rune stones to calm their anxiety. Excuse me? Psycho. What? Psycho. Hope and Tony stayed at Laurie's while she, while uh, Laurie and Melinda went driving on some back roads with Shanda still in the trunk of the car. Shanda was still alive and continued to make crying and gurgling noises. And every time she made a peep, Laurie would stop the car, get out and go to the trunk where she would stab her with a knife, beat her, and sodomize her with a tire iron until she was quiet. Whenever she opened the trunk, Shanda would sit up, covered in blood, with her eyes rolled back in her head, but unable to speak. Probably thinking she's going to get away, you know? She's so out of it. Yeah. Oh, that part just devastated me. Yes, so sad. The last word she could mutter was mommy until Laurie whacked her whacked her with the tire iron again. See, that breaks my heart right there. Yeah. When they were finally satisfied that she was dead, the girls debated on where to dump Shanda's body. They talked about tossing her in a lake and running her over with the car. Sometime during the ride, it was decided that they were going to burn her. Yeah, this shit's rough. Very they returned to Laurie's house, picked up Hope and Tony, and then drove back to the woods. Laurie and Melinda wanted to show Hope and Tony what they had done to Shanda, but Tony refused to look. The other three girls looked, and Hope sprayed Shanda and all of her wounds with Windex. She said, You're not looking so hot now, are you? Ugh. A 12 year old. Ugh. Ugh. Good God. Hope recalled. Not one inch of her wasn't drenched in blood. Amazingly, still alive, Shanda screamed in pain. Still alive. She was a fighter. Absolutely. They stop at a gas station and Tony bought a large body. Body. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) A large bottle of Pepsi to drink. But Laurie grabbed it and emptied it and began filling it with gasoline. Hope informed them that a secluded field uh, include I'm sorry informed them of a secluded field off of Lemon Road where they could burn Shanda. Once they reached the gravel road, Tony, a nervous wreck, stayed in the car while Hope and Laurie opened the trunk, wrapped Shanda's still alive body in a blanket, and laid her out on the side of the road. Laurie ordered Melinda to pour the gasoline over Shanda's body. But Melinda shied away, so she pushed it into Hope's Hope's hand. Melinda shied away. Imagine the girl who just stabbed this girl repeatedly in the chest, tied her up, you know, wants her dead. This was Melinda's idea, shied away from pouring the gasoline on her. What a dumb bitch. So Hope doused Shanda's body with the gasoline, and Laurie lit a match. Shanda was up in flames within less than a second. The girls took off down the road, but turned around when Melinda wasn't convinced that Shanda was dead. 
Melinda got out of the car alone and stood over Shanda, staring at her severely burned body. Melinda later recounted in court, she was burned to a crisp. You couldn't recognize her. I mean, she was totally crisp black. I was sick. I'm sick. Melinda then poured the rest of the gasoline on her and got back into the car. Melinda laughed with the girls about how Shanda's tongue was darting in and out of her mouth. That part got me. Oh my God. And said how happy she was that Shanda was dead, relieved to finally have her out of her and Amanda's lives. Yeah, but you're sick. You felt sick, yeah, right? I bet you did, but you're laughing yeah, about it. Yeah, but you feel so sick. Mm-hmm. After eight hours of brutal torture and sexual assault, Shanda was dead. The girls went to a McDonald's around 9.30 a.m. for breakfast, where they laughed about Shanda's body looking like one of the sausages that they were eating. That's fucking gross, I dude. just can't even deal. No. there. See, that right there, no remorse. Just you don't evil. care. Evil. Just straight up evil. Ugh. Tony, who was horrified, called a friend and told her that the other girls had killed Shanda. Laurie dropped off Hope and Tony at their houses and finally returned to her own house with Melinda. She told Amanda that they had killed Shanda and arranged to pick up Amanda later that day. Amanda didn't believe it and agreed to meet up with them later on. Laurie and Melinda went to pick up Amanda. Then the three of them returned to Melinda's house. Once inside, Melinda cried hysterically, telling Amanda what they had done to Shanda. She said that she had only intended on beating Shanda up, but that Laurie had gone crazy and killed her. Amanda was still in disbelief. That was until they showed her the trunk of Laurie's car. It was soaked with blood. There were bloody handprints, long, curly, dark hairs, and one of Shanda's socks. Laurie laughed while Melinda cried. Amanda was... Why is Melinda crying? I, I know. Like, you have feelings now? Right. She, she's just a... F- sociopath yeah yeah amanda was horrified and she demanded to be taken home immediately when they pulled up in front of her house melinda kissed amanda told her she loved her and begged her not to tell anyone amanda promised that she wouldn't of course she did of course you're afraid you're gonna be the next one yeah and that was her girl girlfriend whatever meanwhile tony and hope confessed to their parents Both of their parents immediately took them to the police station where the girls told their sides of the story and the names of the girls involved. Around the time that the girls were at McDonald's, brothers Don and Ralph Foley were out hunting for quail. While driving down Lemon Road around 10.55 a.m., they spotted a large dark colored object on the side of the road. As they walked up on it, they initially suspected someone had burned a mannequin as a prank. But the closer they got, it became all more clear. It was a young woman's body. She was completely nude except for a pair of ripped blue panties. She was charred black from waist to head. Her pale white legs were spread open and bent at the knees, and both arms were stiffly raised towards the sky with clenched fists. They went back home and called the police, who told them to go back to the location of the body until the sheriff arrived. I don't know if you know that, but a lot of burned people, like people who get burned, they their hands go up like that and clench in the fist. Why is that? I'm not From exactly sure. Or? 
I somebody just or explained it once before, but I don't remember the reason. But that's like a, a thing that happens. Yeah, being burned. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I was, I just that broke my heart. I think it makes it like point zero 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 one percent better that it's not like her doing it in pain. It's just like something that Some your body kind of does. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um. Okay, so around 12 p.m., Deputy Sheriff Randall Spry uh, arrived with Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley. Detective Steve Henry and forensic expert Sergeant Kurt Wells arrived around 1 p.m. Police were shocked at the horrific sight. The girl's body had been burned beyond recognition, and it was posed in a sexual position. Wells was convinced that she had been sodomized. The morning of January 11th, when Shanda's father woke up, he noticed that Shanda wasn't in her room, but he didn't initially think much of it. He assumed that she was probably sleeping in the family room in the basement. When he later realized she wasn't there, he began worrying. He called Shanda's friends first, then his ex-wife Jackie, telling her that he couldn't find Shanda. Jackie came over and they filed a missing uh, persons report. After that, Jackie, Steve, and Steve's wife, Sharon, began searching for Shanda. No luck. At 1.45 p.m., they met with police and filed a missing persons report with the Clark County Sheriff. Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley contacted the Clark County Sheriff and was able to match the body to Shanda's missing person report. So sad. Detectives obtained dental records that positively identified Shanda Sharer as the deceased. An autopsy revealed, this got me too, that she had died of smoke inhalation. Yeah. All of that brutalization, all of that torture, all of that torment, and she died of smoke inhalation. Yep. God. Which means she was burned alive and she fought. God, she, I hope she didn't feel it though. <sighs> that poor girl. Melinda Loveless and Laurie Tackett were arrested on January 12th. The bulk of the evidence for the arrest was based on Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey's statements. All four girls, who were between the ages of 15 and 17, were charged as adults. They each accepted plea bargains to avoid the death penalty. A sad fact that worked in their favor was that all four girls had troubled backgrounds with claims of physical and or sexual abuse committed by a parent or another adult. Melinda Loveless, often described as the ringleader in the killing, had the most extensive history of abuse and mental health issues. Laurie and Melinda were both sentenced to 60 years in Indiana women's prison. On an appeal in 2004, Hope's sentence was reduced from 60 to 35 years. Tony pled guilty to one charge of criminal confinement and was sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Sickeningly, (laughs) all four women have now been released. Oh, gross. Gross. Puke. On December 14th, 2000, Tony Lawrence was released on parole after serving nine years in prison. On April 28, 2006, after sur- serving 14 years, Hope Rippey was released on parole. On January 11, 2018, the 26th anniversary of Shanda's death, Laurie Tackett was released on parole. Mm-hmm. 
And on September 5th, 2019, Melinda Lovelace was released on parole. Those two should have never gotten out. Never. I feel like the other two felt almost forced to interact in it. Yeah. They still didn't have to, of course, but being with those two psychos, I feel like, you know, young girls almost probably feel like they have to prove themselves or they're going to be the next one. Yeah. Well, especially Tony, I feel like she shouldn't have got, I feel like she should have just gotten like. Well, she was the last, you know, she was, she only served nine years. I know, but I still feel like that's a long time for just being there. Just being there. And just like probably being like horrified. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's not like nowadays where everybody has a cell phone and it could have been stopped, you know? I don't, I don't yeah. know. I mean, if I was in that situation, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. I mean, I would hope I would, you know, try to calm things down. Yeah. But... I mean, you don't really know these girls, you know what I mean? And yeah, and especially terrifying. one of them is, like, laughing about all this. Like... Oh, my God. I would... I don't know, dude. But <sighs> I, I still feel like nine years is a lot for... I mean, she didn't participate. She refused to do anything. Yeah. I mean, she could have called for help when, you know, her and Hope were... At the gas station or... Uh, in the house by themselves yeah. while Melinda and Laurie drove away. But also it's... I'm sure they were just traumatized. Yeah. Who knows? Well, those two told their parents pretty much immediately. Yeah. You know, when they had a chance. Well, probably when they knew that the, they, you know, Melinda and Laurie weren't coming back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um... Here's some interesting aftermath for you. During Melinda Lovelace's uh, sentencing hearing, allegations that her father, Larry Lovelace, had abused his wife, his daughters, and other children came out. He was arrested in February 1993 on charges of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. Larry remained in prison for over two years awaiting trial. However, a judge eventually ruled that all all charges except for one count of sexual battery had to be dropped due to the statute of limitations, which was five years in Indiana. So disgusting. Mm -hmm. Most of the crimes occurred from 1968 to 1977. So we're talking 15 plus years, you know, earlier. He pleaded guilty to the one count and was sentenced to time served. Got away with everything. Slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. 52-year-old Larry Loveless committed suicide in December of 1998 by jumping off a highway overpass in front of a school bus. In front of a school bus? Like, what a way to go. I mean, just... Let's traumatize some more children. Right. Like, I'm going to leave this world traumatizing children. Yeah. Shanda Scherer's father, Steve Scherer, died of alcoholism in 2005 at the age of 53. In an interview with Shanda Scherer's mother, Jacqueline Vault, on the Investigation Discovery series Deadly Women, Vault stated that Shanda's father was so destroyed by his daughter's murder that he did everything he could to kill himself, kill himself besides put a gun to his head, and that he drank himself to death. The man definitely died of a broken heart. That's so sad. I don't blame him. It'd probably be me, honestly. I mean, really, you know? Now, this to me is very odd, but to each their own. In closing, I'm going to say that in 2012, Shanda's mother, Jackie Vault, made her first contact with Melinda Loveless since the murder when she donated a dog named Angel in Shanda's name to Melinda Loveless to train for the Indiana Canine Assistance Network program, which provides service pets to people with disabilities. Melinda Loveless trained dogs for the program 
for several years. Vault endured criticism over the decision, but defended her actions, saying, it's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. So she donated a dog in her dead daughter's honor to her dead daughter's murderer to train. For some reason, I feel like parents always say, my my daughter, my child would, would want this. this. But hey, I kind of just don't feel like they would. Know this, you guys. If I ever get murdered, don't show my murderer any sympathy. Same for me. I wouldn't want that. <laughs> I want you guys to I would chase want him them into to the streets. And torture with them. pitchforks and torches. Yes. No, I would not want that. <laughs> no, I would not want that either. If, if my mom's like, Alyssa was just such a kind and caring person and she would not want any harm to come to this person. No. I would. I would want them to be flayed in the streets. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like, if you end my life public, early. <laughs> public service announcement. Announcement: If Brooke or Alyssa get murdered, go after the motherfucker. Please. Thanks. <laughs> do it. And I know you guys could do it, too. <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine the articles that would be in the Don't Drink the Jones Juice group? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it would be never ending. <sighs> We're making jokes now. But right. truly, that story is just... Heartbreaking. Completely just... Wow. So... I, like I said, I remember, you know, watching a documentary or whatever on it many, many years ago, but I had kind of forgotten about the case yeah. until I started delving into it. And, in you know, usual Brooke fashion, I had to cover a child murder because, <laughs> you know, I like to traumatize you guys. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But that's one of the more harder ones, I feel. It was hard. Yeah. It was hard. There was a lot in there that was like. Eek. Anytime I hear that one on a podcast, I'm always like, do I have to listen to this one mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. It always makes me really sad. It's rough. Like, so. And her just going, say, her last word was mommy. mommy. Oh. That breaks my heart. It's like George Floyd. Yeah. You know, him too. Mommy. Oh, oh. Everyone. Just like, hearing that, watching that do video it. is just, just rips your soul. It does. Clean out of your body. Oh, yes, it does. So... All right, well, I guess we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back for part two. Welcome back, guys, to part two. Hello, welcome back. So, I am doing the Blue-Eyed Butcher Susan Wright. Have you heard of it? No. No. Maybe when you start talking about it, I may be more familiar, but it does not sound familiar. I think you probably might know it. Well, you know, this kind of shit's right up my alley, so it's possible. For you not to know her, I will be very surprised. Okay. So, Susan Lucille Wish was born in Houston, Texas, April 24th, 1976. Texas. I know. I was Imagine like. Imagine that. This is, this case is a Burke case. This is a 100% something Burke would cover. <laughs> <laughs> I am like curious now to see like where most murderers come from. Texas. State, state obviously wise. Texas. Like, it's gotta be, right? It has to be. Or at least the, the most brutal cases because those the most brutal seem to be the ones that are 
obviously reported on the most and they seem to always come from texas so yeah you know so she was born in houston texas april 24th 1976 to sue to suella and jimmy lawrence wish According to Susan and her sister, they had to walk on eggshells around their father because his temper would cause him to lash out. When he was mad, Susan would try to stay out of her father's sight as to avoid him lashing out at her. Mm. In a 2020 jailhouse interview, Susan said, I thought that's what happened in every house. If you had told me every husband didn't yell at his wife or make her feel less than dirt, I wouldn't have believed you. Yep, that right there is another uh, trauma um, mind state. Yep. Just knowing nothing but trauma. turmoil and yep. chaos. Yep. And that's all they know. That's all they know. That's all they know. Um, also, my sources were um, Murderpedia. I use Murderpedia. Um, so when she turned 18... She began working as a topless dancer oh. at Gold Cup. Y'all should have just seen that shimmy Alyssa just did. <laughs> I could be a topless dancer. <laughs> just kidding. I couldn't be a bit of kid. <laughs> uh, but she only worked there for two months. So two months of titty shaking. Okay. Three years later in 1997, Susan worked as a waitress in Gavelston, which is where she met her, her future husband, Jeff Wright. They married the following year while Susan was eight and a half months pregnant with their son, Bradley. Wow. In 2002, their second child was born, a girl named Kaylee. That's kind of how it went with me and Scotty, except we never got married. Mm-hmm. We just met each other. Very quickly, and, got impregnated. and Impregnated, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so according to Jeff's friend, he was someone who always liked to have fun, sometimes indulging in drugs and visits to topless clubs. Oh, that's a little too much fun when you're a married man with children. I agree. <laughs> um, they also thought that Jeff did well as a married man, which it just doesn't they um, so really seem like they go together. That sounds okay. back ass word or ass backwards, back ass words. <laughs> You know what I mean. Back ass words. Back ass words. Um, he seemed to be a proud father of his two children and flourished in the stability of having a family, which again, like, okay. Flourishing when he wasn't at the topless clubs. Flourishing. On, you know, high on drugs. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. So Susan was a stay-at-home mom while Jeff worked as a sales represent- representative for carpet and tile companies. Hmm. Although from the outside, Jeff seemed to be a doting father and a good husband to his wife, Susan had a very different version of Jeff that no one else knew about. Mm, I imagine she gets with an abusive man. So according to her, after having Bradley, Jeff became abusive towards her. Nailed it. Susan claims that the house had to be immaculate at all times or it would send jeff into a fit of rage what a trash bag a giant trash bag like a hefty trash bag she's at home raising two children and the house is supposed to be immaculate right um i'm sorry i'm trying to figure out where i was okay there couldn't even be a single toy out of place 
He also expected dinner to be on the table at exactly the same time every day. And if it was even a few minutes late, he would spark up an anger. Oh, my God. Like, ew. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes food takes longer to cook, okay? Sorry, it's 6.07, honey. Instead of 6.04. Yeah. Sorry. So, Jeff had to know her whereabouts at all times. And if she stayed a few minutes late somewhere or took a last-minute trip to the store... Jeff would blow his lid and accuse her of cheating on him. Oh, is she going to snap? <laughs> so Susan also claims that Jeff was having regular affairs on her and he would and he even gave her herpes, which I was. Oh, she going to snap. <laughs> I was literally about to say, usually if your spouse is like really accusing you of cheating on them, they're cheating on you. So. Uh-huh. Jeff's temper, allegedly, would skyrocket and become explosive when he was high on cocaine. Which, like, that seems like a big duh to me. But it wasn't until Jeff started focusing his abuse on the children that Susan decided enough was enough. Oh, no. January 13th, 2003, Jeff came home from boxing, a boxing lesson, high on cocaine. Hmm. Sometime later that evening, Jeff wanted to spar with an unwilling Bradley. Jeff started hitting Bradley anyways and then stormed off when Bradley started, you know, crying. Because he's like a kid and his dad's like hitting him. Yeah. This is where Susan's line was crossed. So she decided to have a talk with Jeff. She introduced the idea of Jeff getting help for his anger issues and his drug use. Susan told him that if he refused to get help, she would leave him. Mm-hmm. And what do you think happened? What do you think happened after that? He blows up and hits her. Jeff just became so enraged. Okay. Mm-hmm. He pushed her down onto the floor and kicked her in the stomach. It's over. almost like I know this story. Yes. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's just typical. You, it's, you could just guess with yeah. men like this. Yeah. Yeah. So he kicked her in the stomach over and over again, and then he dragged her to the bed and... Raped her. Yes. After the sexual assault, Susan laid on the bed with her eyes closed. Suddenly, she heard Jeff say, die, bitch. Mm -hmm. And when she opened her eyes, he was hovering over her with a knife. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. So somehow the 120 pound five foot five Susan was able to push her six foot three, 220 pound husband away from her and disarm him. She began stabbing him, fearing Mm. that if she stopped, he would kill her. Yeah. While this was going on, Bradley came to the door. Mm. Susan took him back to bed and um, comforted him by telling him that everything was okay. After tucking her son back in. Wait, is she like bloody? I mean. I would assume she would be bloody. Yes. Um, So after tucking her son back in, Susan grabbed another knife from the kitchen and went back into the bedroom. She said she was scared that Jeff had found the first knife while she was tucking Bradley in and that he was waiting for her with it. She began stabbing him again. And she said, I couldn't stop stabbing him. I couldn't stop. I knew as soon as I stopped, he was going to get the knife back and he was going to kill me. I didn't want to die. Mm-hmm. Susan stabbed him a total of, you going to take a guess? 114 times. 
193 times. <gasps> I was like way like over guessing on that one. <laughs> that's overkill, baby girl. Yeah, that's literally almost 200 times. Wow. That's a lot of anger, fear, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There were 41 stab wounds to, stab wounds to Jeff's face. Ooh. That ooh. is anger. That is yeah. anger. Ooh. 41 stab wounds to your face. Ooh, that Yeah, that's a crime of I hate you. Like you, yes, 100%. Wow. There were 23 to his neck. Mm. 46 cuts on his chest, 22 wounds on his abdomen, 19 to his legs, and 23 to his arms, and one on his back. Hmm. I was waiting for the pecker. No? So, there were also seven wounds in his groin. Yes. Susan said, I stabbed him in the head, and I stabbed him in the neck, and I stabbed him in the chest, and I stabbed him in the stomach, and I stabbed his leg for all the times he kicked me, and I stabbed his penis for all the times he made me have sex when I didn't want to. Wow. So, rage. Mm -hmm. This is rage. Mm -hmm. The stabbing was so violent that the tip of one of the knives actually broke off in the top of Jeff's skull. Oh, my God. Yeah. Susan loaded Jeff's body up on a dolly and rolled him to the backyard to a hole that he had dug previously in order to install a fountain. Oh, no. She placed his body inside of it and began um, burying burying, burying him with potting soil to weigh him down. He literally dug his own grave. Literally dug his own grave, yeah. When she, uh, she did this because she was fearful that he was going to come back out of the ground and kill her. Oh my God. Because of this, she didn't sleep or eat that night. She entered a fog state of mind. And so she sat awake at night on the couch, holding a knife, expecting Jeff to come home, exploding with rage at any minute. Just call the police. Yeah. Well. Susan claimed that she feared Jeff would be especially angry about the mess in their bedroom, so she got to work using bleach on all of the blood. She, okay. Yeah. This sounds a little made up at this point. Okay, so, <laughs> yes, it does to me. Um, she bought paint to repaint the areas mm-hmm. that blood splattered on the walls. She cut out blood-stained carpet, and she even took apart the bed frame and took it to the backyard along with the blood-stained mattress. Five days after killing her husband, Susan admitted to her mother what had happened. Her family contacted Houston law firm um, Degurian Dixon and Hennessy. Lawyer Neil Davis admitted Susan to a mental health facility. So they called a lawyer. The lawyer institutionalizes her, but nobody tells the police. So... Davis, the lawyer, went to the DA's office and reported a dead body to prosecutors. After he institutionalized her. Yes. Interesting, right? Yeah. I feel like he should have just called the police and they should have came and got her. And then they could decide if she needed to be institutionalized. I feel like that wasn't his job. I feel the same way. So authorities went to the home and found Jeff's body partially buried in the backyard. The family dog had found Jeff first and actually chewed off his left hand. Oh, mm, yum. Tied around his wrist were neckties and an ankle was, uh, and wait, tied around his wrists were neckties and, oh, and one of his ankles was bound by a bathrobe sash. 
Tell me he really was an abusive piece of shit, please. Well, just keep listening. Yeah. There was also red candle wax on his butt, thigh, and genital area, which traced back to the candles found in the bedroom. A knife with a broken tip was found in a flower pot outside. Prosecutors filed charges against Susan, and she turned herself into the police. Carrie Siegler, who was the prosecutor for the case, claims that Susan was lying about the abuse that she endured. Siegler claims that if Susan really had endured the trauma that she says she has, she would have um, had concussions or broken bones, but Susan never received medical treatment for anything related to the described events. Okay, but they usually do not. Right. So that's a bullshit, you know. Right. Um, There's a lot. I am very undecided in this case. Okay. So, well, okay, so now you've mentioned candle wax. And to me, automatically, I think, okay, they were doing something freaky. Mm -hmm. And she pulls out a knife, acting like she's just being all seductive and then like attacks him. That's basically the whole prosecutor's thing. Okay. So so we're about to get into that. Okay. I'm figuring this story out as we go. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, friends and family had never seen anything um, that, you know, kind of matched the abuse that she's describing. Witnesses for the prosecution described Jeff to be a kind and gentle husband and that Susan and Jeff acted lovingly towards each other. The prosecution believes the motive for Jeff's murder was the $200,000 life insurance policy. One of Jeff's co-workers testified that he overheard a phone conversation between Jeff and Susan where Susan was obviously angry about Jeff filling out the paperwork wrong, which held up the process. Siegler said that Susan's story of Jeff high on cocaine straddling her with a knife was ridiculous considering the measurable size and weight difference between the two and especially considering Susan claimed to have just been raped and beaten by Jeff. Mm-hmm. Siegler also claims that because the neckties that were tied around Jeff's wrists were cut, that Susan had to have been stabbing him while he was tied to the bed. Mm-hmm. She also claimed that the candle wax found on Jeff's body was part was used as part of a sex game in order to, or oh my gosh in order to throw jeff off guard so that susan could tie him up and eventually stab him and kill him mm-hmm. the prosecution said that the number of stab wounds suffered by jeff took too much time and energy to inflict to inflict which showed that susan's state of mind was calculated um the wound on Jeff's genitals were also superficial, mm. meaning that Susan did them intentionally and without rage. Mm. Like, so I wonder if that means like she was taunting him? Yes, like she was sitting there like, uh, yes. Torturing him, basically. Pretty much, yeah. The prosecution said that the number of stab wounds suffered by Jeff... Oh, I just read that. Sorry. Okay. The prosecution also accused that within the days following the murder, Susan manipulated her friends and family into believing that Jeff had been abusing her. The day after the murder, Susan went to law enforcement and pressed charges against Jeff for hitting her and Bradley. They took photographs of her cuts and bruises, but Siegler claims that those wounds were from her attack on Jeff. Mm. They also claim that Susan's break from reality was a load of garbage. The supplies bought by Susan, including the bleach and um, the paint, were only purchased to cover up the murder and not because Susan was terrified that Jeff would viciously abuse her for having a mess in the bedroom like she claimed. Mm -hmm. 
Prosecution claimed that the only reason why Susan admitted to the murder to her family was because she realized that she was way in over her head and needed a high-dollar lawyer. Mm -hmm. In order for the prosecution to push their narrative of what actually happened in the bedroom with Susan and Jeff, they brought the actual bed from the crime scene, including the bloodstained mattresses, to recreate, recreate the events. Okay. This is so weird to me, what I'm about to tell you. Okay. It's like... Did they have her get on top of a man his size? Yes. Why am I figuring this whole thing out? I've seen way too many of the same type of (laughs) crimes happen. So, Siegler would play the part of Susan since they were roughly the same size. And Paul Doyle, who was a colleague, would play the role as Jeff because he was roughly the same height and weight. Okay. Mark Reynolds, who was the witness and lead investigator, tied Doyle to the bed and with neckties and a bathrobe, um, a bathrobe sash. I can never say bathrobe sash. So weird. Bathrobe sash. Bathrobe sash. <laughs> I, I can never do it. Um, I, I don't think I've ever said that. Bathrobe sash me either <laughs> until today. <laughs> I would call it that thing that goes in the bathrobe. Me too. The tie. (laughs) The bathrobe tie. The tie, yeah. Um, Okay, where was I? (laughs) Okay, and he used a bathrobe sash, um, you know, to, like, tied it to his ankle in the way that um, the ligature marks found on Jeff indicated. Um, So Siegler then climbed onto the mattress and straddled Doyle with a knife in hand and began to demonstrate how the wounds on Jeff were likely inflicted. Judge Jim Wallace sustained an objection when Siegler tried to act out the part of the story where Jeff was hovering over Susan in order to prove that Susan couldn't have wrestled free from her husband. Like, you should not have allowed that anyways. That is so weird. That is very weird. And it seems just very unprofessional to me. Mm -hmm. The defense had a very different story, though. They outlined the slave-master type of relationship that Jeff forced onto Susan. Susan was in such a constant state of worry that any shortcoming that didn't meet or exceed Jeff's expectations would result in a fiery mess of violence. The defense used the fact that Jeff was convicted of assaulting a stripper that he was having an affair with and someone witnessing him abusing a dog to counteract the testimonies by witness by witnesses of the prosecution that Jeff was as good of a guy as he said he was. I like how I'm like, he was convicted of assaulting a stripper that he was having an affair with, but then he also abused the dog, and you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. No, I mean, I meant to both. Like, mm, <laughs> maybe Jeff wasn't so good. Right. So close family and friends had suspected that Susan was facing abuse from Jeff, Her sister even claimed that she knew it was happening, and a neighbor testified that she knew Susan feared her husband. Susan's hairdresser testified that she noticed bruising on Susan that she figured were from domestic violence. Jeff cared about the image he portrayed to the world. He was calculated on the injuries Susan suffered from him so that others wouldn't notice it was happening. The defense also pointed out that the police had ignored all of the patched up holes in the wall that Jeff had allegedly caused in fits of rage. And they also ignored um, was the broken door frame where Jeff had used the door to repeatedly 
slammed Susan's arm in it. Mm. The defense argued that the night of the murder, Susan was pushed over the edge and experienced a complete break from reality. The defense argued that the sloppily way that Susan cleaned up the crime scene is a strong indicator that she had a break from reality. Susan showed complete detachment from reality even as she spoke with her attorney attorneys a week following the murder. The defensive wounds on Jeff's hands prove that Susan's story of the stabbing is true. He wouldn't have had defensive wounds if he had been tied to the bed like the prosecution claims. Additionally, there were no bruises on Jeff's wrists or ankles and there was and there definitely would have been there definitely would have been if he had been securely tied to the bed while Susan stabbed him. Right. Yeah, you'd think so because he would be trying to get away, right? Right. <clears throat> there was also issues with evidence. The bed frame was never checked for fibers from the neckties or bathrobe sash that the prosecution claims were tied to it. The fingernail clippings from Jeff's fingers were not proper, properly preserved and became moldy and unusable while they sat in the evidence room. Oh my gosh. They could have clearly revealed whether or not Jeff had scratched at Susan while she struggled, or while he struggled, sorry. Mm -hmm. As for the claim that Susan killed her husband in an effort to collect his life insurance, Jeff had actually kept the policy from her. Susan had actually been fearful because he wanted to take one out on her. Mm. On March 2nd, 2004, Susan Wright was found guilty of murder. Ooh. Two days later, this, the same panel rejected the defense that Susan had killed in a sudden rage of passion, and she was sentenced to 25 years in prison. In 2005, the 14th Court of Appeals in Texas and Houston upheld Susan's conviction, but in 2008, with a reappeal, a new witness, Misty McMichael, came forward to share her story. Before she was the wife of former Super Bowl champion Steve McMichael, she was the fiance of Jeff Wright. Mm. She wanted to share her story of the abuse she endured at the hands of Jeff. Susan was granted a new sentencing hearing in 2009 after determining that Susan's counsel rendered ineffective assistance during the punishment phase of trial in 2004. The prosecutor's theory that Jeff was tied to the bed during the stabbing was not supported by the medical examiner who excavated the body. According to the medical examiner, Jeff had a significant amount of cocaine in his body on the night that he was murdered. That was going to be my question. Did he have cocaine in his system? Yes, and there was so much cocaine that it had not been able to metabolize. Hmm. This supported Susan's claim that Jeff had come home from a boxing lesson high on cocaine when he hit their son. Mm -hmm. The defensive wounds on Jeff's hands, forearms, back, and back of his legs were inconsistent with being tied to a bed. November 20th, 2010, Susan's sentence was reduced from 25 to 20 years in prison. She was eligible for parole on February 28th, 2014, but was denied on June 12th, 2014 and July 2017. But on July 2nd, 2020, Susan was officially approved for, approved for parole and was released on December 30th, 2020 at the age of 44. So, my thought is there is so much weird information in this. Mm -hmm. I... I mean, personally, 
I kind of think he probably was abusive to her. Yeah. Maybe not to the extent she claims. Right. Yes. And so I'm kind of thinking like kind of what the prosecution was saying. I kind of think that she may have just gotten sick of it. And snapped. And I don't even think she snapped. I just think she was so sick of it. And she really probably couldn't see another way out. Mm -hmm. Like the candle wax and stuff like that. I mean, while she's stabbing him, if he, if Mm. like the defense says that she's not, uh, he wasn't tied to the bed when she was stabbing him, she's not going to be pouring candle wax on him. Right. Like while he's not tied to the bed. That, that little piece of evidence right there shows me that it probably was premeditated. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am buying that she probably was abused. Oh, I agree with that 100%. Like, I think that they were like, I don't want to say she wasn't raped. That's Mm -hmm. not what I want to say. But, you know, I, I do think that they were doing something together and, you know, she decided it was enough was enough. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And she took matters into her own hands and mm-hmm. stabbed him. And That's a tough one because, you know, only two people know. Right. Oh, and one of them's dead. That's right. The other one will never admit to it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really weird. And all the um, her buying bleach and paint supplies. Yeah. And cutting out the carpet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't buy that part of it. I think she was literally just. I mean, honestly, if she's not trying to cover up the murder, she may just be trying to hide it from her kids yeah. at the very least, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Put them in your backyard, girl. Come on now. In your backyard. How yeah. much more obvious can we get? Right. You know? Yeah. And along with the bloody mattress in the backyard, too. Maybe, like, it was just, like, just sheer relief. And it's, like, she didn't care, really, about hiding it. It was just, like... I don't know. I it could have been. I hate to say that. Like, it, 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 that's a really tough one. Like I said, I don't like to victim blame. He was a victim here. He was murdered. He didn't deserve that. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel in my heart she was a victim as well. She was deaf. I mean, I feel she was a victim too. And I'm not condoning murder. Mm-hmm. He is a victim. She should have never killed him. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. If we lived in a perfect world, it would have never happened. Yeah. But I really feel like sometimes, like, women think that that's the only way out. And not right. that they should do it. And, you know, you she got those, why didn't you just leave, like we were talking oh. about earlier. Yeah. Well, you know? And, and think... it's not that fucking easy. No. It's not. You can't just leave. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you can't just leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when kids become involved, too. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what her children said they're probably so young they yeah i'm just wondering if like they you know because you said he took you know started abusing the children as well well. i think it was that one time with bradley and she just uh, from that's what i got from it okay the one and only time he hit them or abused them was when he hit bradley Mm. so Okay. I kind of wonder if maybe he was a good dad, but mm-hmm. just took out all of his anger and aggression on out her. on Susan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe only when he was high on cocaine, maybe he was a completely different person when he wasn't high, just like with alcoholics mm-hmm. who are, you know, completely well, different when they're If drunk. her story is, is true and others can confirm that he was the controlling type that had to have dinner on the table at a certain time and had to have the house spotless or he would flip his shit, you know, um that 
I don't remember what I was going to say. Um, but, you know, that sh- that's abuse. Yeah. That's it abuse. Is. It is 100%. So. Abuse isn't always being hit. Exactly. And it's not always being called a cunt mm-hmm. or a bitch. Mm-hmm. It happens in other ways, too. It's control. It's, yeah. you know. Making you fearful mm-hmm. for any reason. Yeah. So. And I guess the last thing I'll say, too, is the superficial wounds on his penis yeah. area. Yeah. To me, that's very odd that he would have those if she was stab just stabbing him i mean right. unless she kind of did them after he was kind of passed out on the ground mm-hmm. but it, to me it, it seems more like she would want to do superficial wounds while he's still awake to torture him that's what it seems like to me mm-hmm. yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking she was kind of taunting him like yeah. what are you gonna do now bitch exactly you know? yeah yeah but i guess the world will never know so yeah it's funny because i didn't know that one but you know as you're talking i'm like oh this happened and that happened and that happened because you just know you know so many stories like this Mm -hmm. so yeah oh and then also just the fact that she stabbed him in the face 41 times yeah you don't do that unless you are just you just feel hatred Mm -hmm. for somebody and that also tells me she may have very well been abused yeah like if she was going to kill him for the two hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy shoot him she, or, sip, or you know? yeah step yeah exactly don't you don't stab in the face 41 times like that's a, right just a pure indicator that it was rage yeah so hmm. i don't know <laughs> but rough stuff tonight guys very very rough stuff yes um but yes thank you guys for listening and thank you and uh i wanted to say as well welcome new listeners i know we've gotten several lately which is very phantasmo phantasmo Phantasmo. (laughs) um i also kind of going back to the gabby stuff a a little bit not like that i just want to say how proud i am of you guys for just loving and caring about somebody so much that you know you are you know so invested in this like actually you know seeing everybody post all this stuff like so okay um a lot of people have posted the like multiple things in there like how do i say this like one person will post a video and then like two more people will try to post the same video yeah usually i decline them Mm -hmm. because it's just so much information but it just kind of warms my heart so much to see so many you know just repeated you know right i think there's only one person that i or one video that i've declined a couple of times just because it's already in the group like five times yeah but i've really been very impressed with you guys absolutely and uh also the reason i kind of sighed when she said about gabby it wasn't because i like didn't want to hear it it's <laughs> because it genuinely like makes me and Alyssa, but makes me extremely emotional so it's hard it's hard yeah um you guys probably didn't notice this but we had to pause the um podcast like 11 minutes into us talking about gabby because me and her both are just like we broke down and had a moment or 30 moments 30 minutes. minute moment <laughs> yeah we yeah it yeah it was very emotional yes yeah, so that's why i kind of sighed when she started saying it again i was like it's not because i was like oh shut up. Like, we're gonna cry again <laughs> so. yeah so thank you guys for being wonderful just amazing 
little humans who just have so much empathy and compassion for other people Mm -hmm. it makes me so happy to know that we have listeners who feel that way Mm -hmm. like you're not here for the the gore you're here because you care about humans yes and that means so much to me absolutely we love you love you love you love 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 (laughs) thank you for your support yes thank you guys so much um but before we cry again yeah (laughs) (laughs) um if you don't already um if you're not already a part of our group on facebook you should do so by searching for god's sake don't drink the jones juice and you can follow our instagram and our tiktok that we never use at don't drink the jones juice you can buy our merch at don't or storefrontier.com slash don't drink the jones juice and hopefully me and brooke have talked a little bit about new designs because store frontier is always coming out with uh new clothing pieces like now they have pants yeah joggers and Mm -hmm. uh like baseball cut sleeves or whatever Mm -hmm. um and then if you want to send us your true crime slash paranormal personal stories you can do so i feel like we got one in we did okay we did yeah so we have one we need like seven more yo (laughs) 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 yes so uh you can send those to our email at don't drink the jones juice at gmail.com and we try to do a listener juice episode every single month but we have not really been getting any recently so we need to make a post in the facebook group asking that usually helps yeah yeah i guess when um when we see it on here people probably forget and then go about their day but if it's there in writing what is that okay so i got a new tattoo today you guys and it's on like my thigh back of my thigh and it's covered in saniderm which if you're not familiar with tattoo language it is like a film that covers the tattoo well it is bleeding and gooing through the saniderm right now so before i sat down to finish the podcast i stuck a piece of paper up (laughs) under my thigh because i didn't want to stain the freaking chair with my blood and goo i didn't think it was this bad but i just pulled the piece of paper out from under my leg and there's blood dripping down a piece of paper and i just pulled it out and Alyssa's like what is that (laughs) i had no idea that's weird dude yeah it's gooing everywhere so i've never used that stuff before it just like i said it kind of like traps the moisture in so it keeps it from drying out right yeah this shit's on fire i bet it is i I think i got it on the chair okay okay well we'll go then (laughs) for god's sake don't drink the jones juice